Hey there, and welcome to the Box Office Watch Podcast, where we keep watch on how much money movies are making and why. This is the show recapping the weekend of Thanksgiving from 2021, Wednesday, the 20th, November 24th through Sunday, the 28th. My name is Paulo, and I'm your host. Hope everyone is doing well out there. If you're based stateside, I hope your Thanksgiving weekend was full of good times and good food. Uh, I myself flew back down to Florida to spend time with my folks, uh, which was a good break from you know my day job. Uh, that being said, the box office never ends, especially Thanksgiving weekend, which with families meeting up, uh, a lot of movies end up getting seen. Uh, we'll get to those numbers in a little bit, but it's actually a big, bigger story I wanted to cover at the top of the show. For a top story this week, Monday the 29th this week was Spider Monday, uh, when tickets for No Way Home went on sale. Uh, the exact time depended on your region, but here in the States, it seemed they went on sale at 12.01 a.m. Eastern Time, Monday or thereabouts, so Sunday night. Um, I'll admit, I actually thought that the time was going to be about noon on Monday instead of at midnight, uh, but you know, I luckily happened across some people's posts on social media about waiting, uh, counting down the minutes before they would be able to uh, get tickets. Uh, in any case, if you're like me and you decide to try your luck at getting Spider-Man tickets that night, uh, you knew it was kind of a sit show. Uh, no, one not seen since Avengers Endgame tickets went on sale a couple years ago. Uh, multiple kit- ticket sale platforms across the internet, Fandango, AMC, Regal, Cineplex, and many more, all of them, their systems were overwhelmed by the demand and crashed uh, with the server load of people rushing to buy tickets. Uh, my personal experience, you know, I was trying to buy my tickets for a local theater maybe three or four blocks away from my apartment here in New York on the Upper East Side, not the most central of theaters, uh, um, uh, and so you know it only had a couple of so times as a result. Um, you know, my company's holiday party is being on is on the Thursday that the movie comes out, and then my wife and I already have something planned for Saturday. Um, and so you know, with us needing to wait for a somewhat needy dog uh, to fall asleep before we go out to see a movie, uh, the only time that really worked for us was 9:30 p.m. on Friday, the 17th. So, like a couple of minutes before midnight, I refresh the AMC app and I see that you know somehow the tickets are the show times already live slightly before midnight. So I click on the 9:30 p.m. Friday time and get thrown into a new page I'd never seen before in the app. Um, they basically set up a waiting queue page, similar to when you're virtually in line for tickets to a concert or Comic Con or something, um, where it would say you know you have X number of minutes before it's your turn to buy tickets, estimated, updating periodically. Um, you know that way they were trying to you know uh, throttle the number of people in the system at a given time. So my wait time was about eight minutes or so, which isn't too bad. Um, however, you know, after those first eight, those first eight minutes passed, I was in the system. Um, normally, I would be able to select my seat uh, in the app, um, and I got an error where they couldn't load the seat chart. Um, I refreshed, you know, the page a couple times. I you didn't exit the app, but I tried going to another app and tried coming back to see that I would refresh it. Nothing worked. So I unfortunately then, you know, essentially canceled, exited out of the order, which meant I needed to requeue. Um, this time, when I entered the queue, the wait time was 28 minutes or so. So, you know, I wait for another half an hour or so, commiserating with some folks online about, you know, our troubles trying to get tickets. Um, this time, when I get to the front of the line, I am actually able to uh, get the seat chart up. And it looks like there are actually a lot of seats available for my theater. Um, you know, so I select two seats uh, and move to the next page. Now, since I'm in AMC A-list, I need to select how many of my remaining seats uh, need to be paid for, you know, maybe, and whether they're for a child, for a senior, or for an adult. And this is where I think the server 
load was still causing, I think, database issues or something. I kept trying to select adult tickets, and I wasn't able to, and I, and I would hit, you know, select, and I would just, you know, the page would essentially reload again. I would need to reselect the number of adults. And then sometimes, you know, it's so, you know, one of your tickets is AMC A-list, please select uh, the remaining, and I was able to select one. Sometimes, you know, I was able to select two, which shouldn't have happened. And sometimes my AMC A-list status, you know, didn't appear, and I was still able to select two. In either case, I wasn't able to move forward uh, with the rest of my order. I tried going back to the select seat page and tried to pick different seats, you know, cancel my seat, like, you know, unselect the main the first two seats, pick two seats a row back, try to see if that worked, no dice. Um, eventually, you know, I did it, went back and forth between enough so many times, I noticed that, you know, I wasn't actually able to unselect the seats I had selected at that point, I could only add new seats. Um, so I think there was a database issue where, you know, it was, it was basically saying that these seats were taken, but then they weren't taken, and it was causing, I think, some sort of error on their end. So at that point, I had to exit out of the order to try to get it to work. At this point, it's about 1.30 a.m., and I have work the next morning. So I hop back into the queue just to see how long it would be, and the indicated times will take me over, like, over an hour before I'll get my chance uh, to you know, buy, try to buy tickets again. So I figure, you know, People, you know, I, I, I'm guessing at this point because when I load up and I'm waiting for 28 minutes, but that, that, that second time around, but, you know, only maybe like five to six seats are selected uh, for my theater. So I figure you know, this is the entire AMC server is on this hold. So while people in California on the West Coast are still up, you know, three hours away, you know, it's still, it's still you know, what, like 1030 at that point, um, you know, West Coast time, people are still going to be up. So people are still going to be trying to get theaters uh, in California. I figure, you know, I'm not going to try to compete for server space here. I'm not going to try to wait up and, and, and still have these server issues when I get on there. I'm just going to go to sleep and, you know, pray that tickets will be available. Uh, what was in my favor is like I said, you know, even though there aren't a lot of show times, my local theater, uh, again, isn't the most central, you know, and if you want to get the more premium experience, uh, which would be the most in demand for the super fans, right? Like IMAX seats or maybe the, the, the nice plus, plusy uh, recliner chair that AMC has, you know, my theater has none of that. Uh, so, you know, and it's also a little bit of an older neighborhood that we live in. So, um, you know, I, I think the, the younger fans would, would probably go to one of the other uh, theaters uh, in the city. So, you know, praying that, you know, based on waiting for, you know, basically half an hour, 40 minutes or so, um, and not all the tickets were gone by that point, I would hope that overnight people in New York would probably be asleep at that point uh, and, you know, not trying to book tickets. So I would just try to do it in the morning. Turned out, I was right. Uh, Monday morning, I wake up like 7.30 so I can walk the dog. And this time when I check the app, you know, uh, before even rolling out of bed, you know, there's no wait time at all. I'm able to get my, uh, there's still a bunch of seats open. So, you know, I ended up booking my two tickets. Long story short, I have the 9.30 uh, Friday tickets uh, for Spider-Man. Um, and lessons learned, I think I'd probably wait in the future for this kind of thing. Now that all being said, you know, uh, you know, again, this wasn't a this, this was a craze for for pre-sale takes I haven't seen since Endgame a couple years ago, and I think before that was probably the, the time before that was probably The Force Awakens, um, and you know the, the numbers seem to bear that out from from reports. Uh, industry sources seem to indicate that in the U.S. and Canada, uh, over the first 24 hours of sales, about three million individual tickets were sold for a total of about 35 million dollars. Uh, in comparison, Endgame had about 40 million dollars of pre-sales on its first day. And The Force Awakens had only $25 million. Um, you know, for post-pandemic comparisons, the next two highest pre-sales, Eternals and Black Widow, had about you know 150k tickets uh, for about 2.7 million in their first day. So you know, nearly you know 10 times as much, uh, in more than 10 times as much uh, you know number of tickets sold in terms in, in going by that metric. Uh, looking a little bit deeper, if you combine the first 24-hour pre-sales of all 2021 films, you know, not only just you know the the 
first, not only just you know the the next closest ones. Every film that's come out this year had pre-sales. The No Way Home still beats all of that by having three times as much pre-sales. Uh, Black Widow's final pre-sales, you know, as in for the entire period from the first day up until right, like I guess this would be like Wednesday night before the Thursday night previews. Um, you know. Black Widow basically only had, uh, I believe, uh, 30 million total. And again, No Way Home had 35 million. So it already beat that total just in the first day. In a, you know, Thursday, you know, so far we're looking at 17 million so far. Cineplex and Fandango, you know, have said this is the largest pre-sale uh, post-pandemic. I believe Cineplex is actually po- biggest pre-sale day ever for them. Uh, and of course, AMC was doing AMC things and, you know, catering to their to their investors. Uh, they included, I think, I believe NFTs uh, partnering with Sony for the first, like, 86,000 tickets uh, that got sold. So, you know, that's a thing, you know, monetization-wise, I guess. Anyway, where do we go from here? You know, I'm, I'm finally... Having trouble finding the exact details on the number of pre-sales or other films, um, but from what I can find, you know, Endgame had about 120 million dollars total pre-sales by the end, uh, and had its monumental opening of 357 million domestically. The Force Awakens did about 247 million opening weekend. So I think at this point, it's definitely going to pa- open past 100 million. This is going to definitely be the 100 million opener we've been waiting for. The real question now is: is Are we going to hit 200 million? Are we going to hit maybe 250 million? Especially as more pre-sales come up over the next couple of weeks. And more and the weekend of walk-ups come into play you know barring you know a, you know terrible reviews like batman v superman or justice league uh tanking sales or you know to a lesser degree eternals after those initial reviews came out this year um some dreamers might even say hey 300 million might be in play here which would be the second highest opening weekend domestically ever which is crazy to think about post-pandemic uh, there is no real competition the week of no one wants to try to open the same weekend um that said steven spielberg's west side story uh does come over from the weekend prior but you know i'd imagine that movie theaters would basically let spider-man take all of the screenings available that they have all this all the screens and and so times available um if they go, go full end game and you know run screen times at you know 1 a.m in the morning maybe that might help it get there i don't know i think if, um, if they don't do that you know i think maybe 250 million would be the cap in a pre-pandemic time um you know now now adding in you know the following weekend is christmas uh and so i think the legs on this will definitely be able to push it to a billion dollars worldwide you know now the devil's advocate you know against these uh you know totals might be one you know post-pandemic films i think people you know in this for the sake of you know social distancing or making sure they get a good seat uh people are doing a little bit more pre-sales uh for films as opposed to pre-pandemic so you know the number of walk-ups may be a little bit more limited than they were before and then b uh we'll talk about this a little bit later but the looming omicron variant of covid it may put a damper on things you know i i think obviously people i think who some people are just going to be willing to see the movie you know uh regardless um but there may be people who may have pause about you know if they haven't already bought their tickets maybe have pause on, on going out so we'll see um still you know imagine what this would have done in a non in a pandemic free era i think two billion definitely would have been a certainty at this point with sony being the third studio ever to break that mark you know behind disney obviously with endgame and star wars and now 20th century's avatar and paramount with titanic at the very least, though, it seems that Sony is happy with these. Uh, Amy Pascal, the producer on Sony's side for the Spider-Man films, is saying that they're planning for a third trilogy with Tom Holland. Though, you know, the grain of salt there that may be in negotiations and more publicity for this film, given recent statements from Tom Holland as of late. 
Anyway, that's the top story this week. Obviously, we'll keep an eye on how pre-sale numbers for No Way Home end up evolving over the next couple of weeks. Um, that said, before we get to the rest of the numbers and headlines for this episode, uh, a quick word from Friends of the Show, Jeff and Pierre. They do a bunch of movie-related podcasts, um, and I'm going to run an ad from them, letting them tell you about it right about now. This is Classic Movies Live, the pre-recorded show where we talk about movies that just came out. I'm your host, Jeff, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Pierre. Pierre, what movie are we talking about today? Jeff, what are you talking about? We're recording an ad. Oh, is this an ad for Kicking It With Kendrick, the show where every week we bring on a different expert to talk about the filmography of Anna Kendrick? No, no, this is an ad for Losing It Over Leo, the show where we chronologically go through Leonardo DiCaprio's career from childhood to his Oscars. Are you entirely certain this isn't an ad for CML Classics, episodes of Classic Movies Live that we recorded two years ago? Well, I guess it's an ad for all four at this point. Well, you know what? That just works out because you can find all four of those over on the Heatwave Radio channel on Spotify. Nice. Thanks, Jeff and Pierre. All right, so let's dig into the domestic numbers over the Thanksgiving weekend. Now, the numbers, you know, there is a little bit of, might might be some confusion here, so I'm going to try to be clear. You know, some numbers recorded are going to be for the three-day weekend, uh, the normal Friday, Saturday, Sunday we always talk about every week. But then obviously because it is Thanksgiving and some films open on Friday um, and the expectations are recorded for Friday, um, that includes Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, um, I'm going to do my best to differentiate between the two. In first place this week, we have Disney's newest animated film, Encanto, featuring music from Lin-Manuel Miranda. Now, as with the rest of the Disney slate post Shang-Chi, this is theatrical only, though unlike the other films that Disney is releasing, uh, you know, those are going to have 45-day theatrical windows before going to VOD. Uh, Encanto presumably will have only a 30-day theatrical window uh, before going to uh, online streaming services, uh, presumably to take advantage of the Christmas movie watching at home in a couple of weeks. Now, over the three-day weekend, Encanto made $27.2 million in 3,980 theaters for a per theater average of $6,836. Over the five-day weekend, they ended up at about $40.5 million. Depending on who you ask, this is about right where forecasts were. Deadline had them about 35 to 40 million, um, or a bit below. You know, box office post I think has been overestimating for this weekend, um, and they had it closer to 56 million. Overall, I characterize this as a fine result. You know, not necessarily a stellar one. Obviously, you know, com- you know, compared to pre-pandemic films, and this is you know again pre-pandemic and a beast, you know, a juggernaut in its own right. Uh, Frozen two in 2019 opened 130 million dollars. Uh, you know, this Thanksgiving weekend. Um, another comparable film, you know, perhaps not quite as extreme, but it might be a similar Disney film uh, centered around a Hispanic culture, um, you know, Coco in 2017, opening to about 50 million uh, US dollars. Now, budget-wise, it looks like Encanto sits at about 120 million dollars, uh, which is, you know, less than the typical Disney animated film has been. Uh, um, you know, Wreck-It Ralph, I believe, was about 150 or so. Via, you know, they definitely cut down the budget to about 100 million dollars. So, they're definitely Disney's definitely, you know, cutting the costs uh, on their animated films as much as they can. Um, in order to get to that 100 20 million, only about a 3x multiplier to break even domestically, which I think should be doable, you know, being a kid's film and moving into the holiday season. Uh, internationally, they made another $25 million or so, and so currently Encanto is at $65 million worldwide. 
demographics, it looks like you know 52% of the five-day growth came from Latino and Hispanic audiences, and about 51% coming from families. Definitely over-indexing here. Um, you know, overall audience and critic scores were pretty good, about 92, 93% on Rotten Tomatoes, with an A on Cinema Score. Now, obviously, you know this is you know not the juggernaut of you know uh, family films. I think that that Disney was hoping for, perhaps, um, even though it, you know, it was in line with their expectations. I think part of that is the fact that the number two film, Ghostbusters Afterlife, uh, is also very had a lot of family. I think I saw numbers from Deadline that they basically had nearly identical number of total tickets sold uh, this weekend. Um, in its second weekend, Sony's sequel made twenty four million dollars over the three day weekend um, in uh, four thousand three hundred and fifteen theaters. Um, um, that, that's a per theater average of 5,608, a per th- a 45% drop, which is you know solid, all things considered. Again, 2017 versus Coco, uh, we have the live action Justice League dropping 56% uh, over Thanksgiving weekend, though you know again that might be because of reviews. And 2019 against uh, you know Frozen 2, Ford versus Ferrari dropped 50% um, in the second weekend. Now, domestic total to date for this film is 87.5 million. That already is uh, ahead of the 75 million production budget as well as the second weekend total of the 2016 Ghostbusters remake, which was at $86 million at this point in time, which had a 54% drop in its second weekend. Um, again, I'll bait this was over the summer versus a holiday weekend. Uh, Ghostbusters also has the IMAX screens a little bit uh, for this weekend, stealing a little bit more away from Encanto. Now, in third place, we have another new opening, uh, Ridley Scott's second period drama this year featuring Adam Driver, United Artists House of Gucci alongside, uh, you know, Adam Driver appearing alongside Lady Gaga and their leader, Al Pacino, Jeremy Irons, and so many more. Uh, this one opened a little bit better than the last duel, making $14.4 million over the three days uh, in 3,471 theaters uh, for per theater average of 4,156, uh, closing out the five day with a total of $22 million. Forecasts for the weekend were about 17 for the three-day and 26.9 for the five-day from box office pros, while Deadline was more conservative, pegging it to the high teens for the five-day total. So, you know, somewhere in between these two extremes, so basically met expectations. Again, you know, it is, you know, it is, uh, you know, somewhat a little bit low, um, you know, not the biggest opening we've seen thus far this year, um, but it is the highest grossing adult-centered drama film uh, in two years. The last highest adult drama was Little Woman on Christmas 2019, uh, opening to $16.7 million on the three-day and $29.2 million for the five-day. So some, I believe, reason to celebrate at the very least. Uh, critics were a little bit mixed, uh, with 62% on Rotten Tomatoes, while audiences gave it an 84%, and Cinema Score had it at a B+. Internationally, it made another 13 million or so, over, uh, bringing the total to about 35 million dollars or so. Um, it's a bit away from the 75 million production budget. I don't, I'm not sure if it's fully going to get there. It'll probably break even, probably. Um, but I think they'll consider this a success if it can snag a few Oscar noms and hopefully wins. Um, it should be competitive for at least best costume and hair and makeup, I believe. Um, and you know, if they do that, they probably consider it a success at this point. Fourth place goes back to Disney and Marvel with the fourth weekend of Eternals dropping only 28%. Uh, better in the last few weekends, though, um, I don't want that's probably helped by the holiday weekend. Um, it's down to 7.9 million this weekend over the three days in 3,165 theaters, four per theater average of 2,504, uh, and a running total of 150 million, crossing that milestone. It'll probably be able to get out to somewhere in the 160 to 170 million range at this point domestically. And lastly, it's made just under $200 million, $199.8 million as of recording, uh, so about 350 million lifetime so far.
And then rounding out the top five is Sony's latest Resident Evil movie, which I saw like no marketing for, uh, Welcome to Raccoon City. Uh, this one made 5.3 million over three days in 2,803 theaters for per theater average of 1,989 in its debut over the weekend, netting 8.8 .8 million for the five day. Again, lower than what Box Office Pro forecasted, 7.4 million three day, 11.5 million five days, but in line with the studio estimates of about eight to 10 million for the five days, as Deadline reported. Definitely a low response with audience on Rotten Tomatoes at about 69% and a C plus on CinemaScore. I strongly suspect Sony would have preferred that this be sold to streaming somewhere on like Amazon or Netflix, um, but no one ended up buying it off of them. Um, I think it had like a budget of $25 million or so. And so now it's, you know, competing against their own film Ghostbusters. So yeah, it made another $5 million abroad, which puts a total at $14 million. Again, definitely, I think it'd be a struggle to get the $25 million uh, budget. Uh, might break even if at all. Um, outside of the top five, you know, I think the biggest notable release this weekend was Paul Thomas Anderson's newest film, Licorice Pizza, again, likely an award favorite this year. Uh, Paul PTA broke the PTA per theater average record post-pandemic, making $345,000 in four theaters, uh, one in LA, three here in New York, all 70 millimeters, uh, for a per theater average of $86,289. Um, I believe, um, Come On, Come On, uh, in a couple weeks ago had about a 26,000 per theater average. Now, this total actually beats some of Paul Thomas Anderson's other limited openings over the years, including 2017's Phantom Thread, uh, which opened in four theaters to only $216,000. So, um, you know, there is also a sneak preview. Uh, so that's, you know, good for this film. Bodes well. I believe it's going, I believe, wide, I want to say Christmas or so. Um, there's also a preview for Illumination's newest animated film, Sing 2, uh, opening about 1,000 theaters for a single showing at 5 p.m. on Friday. Uh, numbers were not reported, but it'll be rolled up into the December 22 opening. Uh, it seems that, you know, from anecdotally, from most places that had them, it seems that they were sold out, uh, which bodes well for them. This will be some nice, uh, I guess, counter-programming for people, for parents who maybe don't want to take their kids to Spider-Man or weren't able to get tickets for Spider-Man, um, you know, over the holidays. Um, kind of like Alvin and the Chipmunks did surprisingly well against uh, Star, Star Wars. Um, Dune also crossed the $100 million mark officially domestically, now sitting at $102 million, officially beating Godzilla vs. Kong's $100 million to be Warner's highest-grossing film domestically for the year. And King Richard, uh, in its second weekend, had an okay drop, about 39%, again, helped by the holiday, um, now sits at $11.3 million domestically. Um, you know, 39% is good for the second-best drop of the HBO Max day-and-date releases. Uh, behind Those Who Wish Me Dead, though, that had a very tiny opening to begin with, so they didn't have far to drop, really. Um, um, and I believe, you know, they should, I believe with another $4 million or so, um, should get it to just over $15 million, which would beat uh, the little things, uh, you know, high, uh, you know, adult drama gross from Warner Brothers this year. Um, all the other films that they released, you know, are more blockbustery and, you know, obviously would have higher totals. Overall, total box office for this Thanksgiving did not break $100 million, uh, with only $95.96 million over the three days, um, or about $145.5 million over the five days. Down from 2019, led by Frozen 2, where the five-day believe total was, I believe, was uh, $263.4 million or so. Looking ahead, you know, there are no wide releases this coming weekend, mostly some limited stuff, which bodes well for Gucci and Encanto's legs. Um, Dune will get those IMAX screens back as well, which will, you know, help push it grows up a little bit further. And then December 10th, we have West Side Story from Spielberg being released from 20th Century, uh, before the big kahuna of No Way Home coming December 17th. 
Notably, it looks like Matrix Resurrections coming out the week after the 22nd, um, you know, after Spider-Man will have the IMAX screens, but by contract, but I think all the other premium large format screens will go to Spider-Man. The 22nd also sees 20th Century's The Kingsman, as well as the aforementioned Sing 2 and Licorice Pizza going wide Christmas Eve, and uh, football tale American underdog, underdog about Kurt Warner starring Zachary Levi releasing on Christmas Day. Now, looking at international news, obviously the big thing on everyone's mind at the moment is the potential spread of the Omicron variant of COVID from South Africa. As of recording, there is no announced cases here in the States, though. It's already in Canada, and I think it's only a matter of time, you know, people delays in testing and so on. Uh, no exact forecast as of right now how this will impact box office domestically, with 59% of the U.S. population already fully vaccinated. I have a feeling people will probably be able to risk it, at least for Spider-Man, uh, especially with no streaming option. If anything, I think Omicron will probably have a bigger impact on overseas box office, where, you know, they're a lot more prone to shut things down at this point. Um, we'll have to wait and see, and, you know, if the if the, if the new variant is vaccine-resistant at all or not. Um, that said, you know, a report out of Francis Institute Pasteur, uh, a nonprofit focused on the study of diseases and vaccines, found in the study that apparently there was no increased risk, risk of infection uh, from going to, you know, cultural centers, you know, so theaters or movie, the or movie, uh, you know, both the movie and the stage play kind, uh, compared to restaurants or bars or private parties. Now, zooming into the UK specifically, uh, Dune has moved into third place uh, for 2021 with 20.54 million pounds and ahead of Peter Rabbit's 20.47 million pounds behind Sanctis' 21.29 million pounds. Uh, meanwhile, No Time to Die sits at a whopping 95 million pounds or about 130 million US dollars, which is the third highest now all time in the UK passing Spectre. It only sits behind Skyfall and the final Harry Potter film. Currently, No Time to Die sits at 755 million dollars worldwide. Uh, hopping over to China, you know, not too much to report here. Um, I didn't report the individual film totals last week due to, you know, time and having to edit out before I, I took my plane. Uh, but the top four hasn't changed since last week. First place goes to local film Be Somebody, a crime drama genre film uh, in its third weekend and making $22 million for a $95 million total. Second place went to suspense horror film The Door Lock and they remaking a 2018 Korean film uh, in its second weekend making $6 million for a $32 million total to date. Third place goes to war film Railway Heroes, making $4 million in its second weekend and $10 million to date. Uh, fourth place is the ever-present Lake Changjin, making $4 million in its to add to its $894 million total, with another extension taking it to December 30th. And then fifth place goes to 2020 film The Banker, starring Anthony Mackie and Sam Jackson, with a $1.7 million opening. Here in the States, you can actually catch that on Apple TV. I believe it had a very limited release before going there. Finally, from China, we did get confirmation that the sequel to the 2019 drama thriller Sleep Seep Without a Separate, uh, the ninth highest grossing film of 2019 from China, will have its sequel launch on the Spider-Man weekend of December 17th. Uh, basically, soft confirming that you know Spider-Man is going to be delayed until at least January at this point. There's also a report that China plans to increase the number of movie screens from 80,000 today to about 100,000 in the next four years. Anyway, beyond the numbers, the biggest story I saw was a report from the New York Times conducted by the film resource company Quorum saying that about 49% of pre-pandemic moviegoers are no longer buying tickets, with potentially 8% of that permanently lost. The implication being that movie theater owners need to rethink their pricing models and customer services and value adds uh, in order to try to recapture that lost uh, segment of moviegoers from pre-pandemic. In any case, though, before we wrap up, uh, it's time to go over what I've been watching. These are from last week, but again, I was in a rush, so you get to hear about them now. 
First up, Ghostbusters Afterlife. Now, again, I didn't necessarily grow up having seen Ghostbusters as a kid, but I do appreciate the impact they've had culturally. To prep for this film, if you've been listening the past couple of weeks, you know that I've watched the original Ghostbusters film and the second one as well, not the 2016 one, though. Um, overall, I think my main issues with the original Ghostbusters was predominantly the romance or so-called romance between Bill Murray and Sigourney Weaver's characters. It felt really awkward and, and kind of shoehorned in. Um, I definitely didn't get the appeal of or why how he's, you know, uh, uh, putting the moves on her and, and, and all that, but whatever. Um, and, you know, there's also the resolution to the conflict around Gozer felt very conveniently resolved um, when, you know, you didn't really get the sense that they were actively pushing toward the solution. Maybe they, maybe they were doing it in the background. They didn't really good, do a good job of sewing that. Um, instead, they kind of focused more on, on, on just the charm of these characters, basically, right? Um, Meanwhile, here in Afterlife, I think those issues are resolved, right? The romance between Paul Rudd's character and the mom felt a lot more believable. Um, hello, sexiest man alive, Paul Rudd. Uh, and then the initiative taken by the kid characters to try to figure out what was going on, um, as well as the groundwork laid by Harold Ramis' character, Spengler, that's revealed throughout the film, you know, counter those original quibbles I had with the first film. Now, we do lose out on having the setting of New York as basically another character, and that's one of the charms of the first film, especially someone who lives in New York. Um, but we also do gain the advancements of CG and special effects technology in the decades since the first one. Um, the original Ghostbusters predated the use of CG technology um, used in Jurassic Park, and so you know now we can kind of get the real visual, like the real image of what these ghosts should have been like, right? Like instead of the claymation that they were using back then. Uh, if you have a chance, I would definitely recommend checking out the Adam Savage videos on the behind the scenes of the of being on set and looking at like how they got all the props to work and such. Um, we also trade, you know, themes of you know small business versus city bureaucracy that was present in the '80s, being set in the '90s, being you know from the first film set in the '80s. Um, you know, this one more focused, you know, on more family focused, right? And you know, stuff about you know dealing with imperfect families, right? Like Jason Reitman's drawing from Jason Reitman's relationship with his father. Um, you know, at this point, I think you know it's also safe. You know, they will go mild spoilers, but you know, it's been out for a couple of weeks at this point. Um, you know, not gonna lie, I think the the the, the callbacks and the cameos by the original Ghostbusters um, and some resolution to their story arc actually was I think the perfect way I would love to do cameos uh, especially with with actors who have passed away I'm not gonna lie definitely got you know a little even though I have just, just seen the films got a little bit emotional seeing what they did uh, with the late Harold Ramis' character as well um, you know this one just overall I think the number one word I would say to describe this it just has a lot of heart to it uh, in particular I want to shout out the character of Podcast of course my favorite character would be the sort Asian kid with a boom mic calling himself podcast uh, in any case though overall i would say ghostbusters afterlife is a four out of five for me possibly a five out of five if you are a super fan of the franchise now, the other film I watched uh, in the past couple of weeks is Lin-Manuel Miranda's directorial debut uh, and Andrew, uh, the Tick, Tick, Boom, starring Andrew Garfield, uh, the musical on Netflix. So for those not aware, you know, uh, Jonathan Larson was the creator of the Broadway hit Rent, um, and he created he had a one-man show of the same name, Tick, Tick, Boom, uh, you know, before Rent, actually, about being a semi-autobiographical, about being a composer in New York uh, in his late 20s. You know, after his early death and the success of Rent, it, you know, Tick, Tick, Boom was reworked from a monologue into a three-man show that ran off-Broadway, and Lin-Manuel actually starred as, in, uh, you know, what took the lead role in the 2014 um, you know, revival alongside his Hamilton colleagues Leslie Odom Jr. and Karen Olivo, uh, a.k.a. Aaron Burr and Angelica. 
Now, given you know his Lin Manuel's background, you can see how the story is particularly important and personal to him. As far as the film itself goes, I think it's really good, right? Now, it's not the most conventional of musicals, perhaps, and you know maybe there's something missing there that I would have liked to see. But then again, that's kind of what Larson and Rent are all about, right? Um, you, you can see a lot of threads from this autobiographical story that would later be the framework for what he would eventually do with Rent. I gotta say the standout in the film is definitely Andrew Garfield. You know, perhaps I just have a soft spot for him. He was the lead of the first real film I really watched with the intent of like, oh, I'm going to pay more attention to movies, um, which was Silence by Scorsese, you know, several years ago. I definitely loved his, his Spider-Man portrayal as well. I thought he got a bit of a raw deal in all of that. Hopefully we'll see him in No Way Home. Uh, but, the, you know, the way that, you know, he carries himself on interviews on the press circuit has also impressed me. And, you know, in this film, he, you know, he shows he has the reins. He can sing, but also act. He definitely brings a good, you know, he definitely shows the complexities of the Larson character um, in, in, in a way that probably few very expected he would be able to do. You know, some songs on the soundtrack, particularly Boho Days and 3090, have been earworms for me in the past couple of weeks. Um, I know there's a strong musical competition in the Oscars with, you know, West Side Story coming out in the next few weeks, but I'd really like to see this one go to distance for awards. At the very least, please give it, you know, best actor for Andrew Garfield. Anyway, it might not be a perfect film, I think, um, especially if you weren't super into Rent or Larson or even musical theater in general, so you may not get as much out of it if you didn't. But, you know, having a Rent-obsessed wife and having just watched a 20 2005 adaptation, uh, this one hit really well for me. Overall, I give it 4 out of 5 stars. Uh, and with that, I think that's a wrap for this episode. Shoot me ideas for what else I should cover via email at boxofficewatchpodcast at zero.com or on Twitter at BOWatchPodcast. You can find our show on Spotify, iTunes, and Google Play. Make sure you subscribe and leave a review, or at the very least, tell a friend any of that helps. If you're feeling extra generous, consider supporting us on Patreon, which lets us not make not only this show, but all the other podcasts I work on. And in addition, make sure again, again, make, again, make sure you check out those shows by um, you know, Jeff and Pierre, you know, classic movie lives, kicking with Kendrick and so on. Um, you know, definitely give them a Give, you know, check, check them out. You can find all of them, uh, all of the, all everything I just talked about in the show notes. Numbers you need to show come from thenumbers.com. Intro and outro music come from Kevin MacLeod at incompetech.filmmaster.io. Editing production by Ninja Boy Media. Until next time, this has been the Box Office Watch Podcast. And remember, our watch goes off. Yeah.